Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. General David Petraeus is one of America's most famous soldiers in the modern era, serving in Iraq and Afghanistan before a year in charge of the CIA. The Telegraph's Ukraine The Latest podcast team interviewed Petraeus about his views on the war in Ukraine. He spoke about the Ukrainian counteroffensive, arms deliveries, Western support, and what the invasion means for the future of warfare, and how Western foreign policy has changed in the shadow of Iraq. Myself, Francis Sternley and Dom Nichols spoke to David Petraeus a few weeks ago. I started by asking him to summarise his perspective on the big picture in military and political terms. Did he think Ukraine is winning or losing? Well, I'm very cautious about using terms like winning and losing. You may recall during the surge in Iraq and all the rest of that, I just refused to say that at all. I would just say we're making progress or we're not. Although, frankly, we were losing prior to the surge in Iraq. In fact, we were losing in Afghanistan when we returned our focus to it as well. I think the reality is, and if you examine it, you'll see that really from the first few weeks of the war, the Ukrainians have been winning back, liberating parts of their territory repeatedly, almost without any Russian achievements, with the one exception of the very costly seizure of Bakhmut during their otherwise undistinguished winter campaign by the Russians. But of course, the Ukrainians won the battles of Kiev, Kharkiv, and, and Chernihiv and Sumy uh, in the north and northeast and east. Kiev particularly significant, since that was presumably the Russian main effort. After all, their main focus was to take the capital, topple the Zelensky government, and replace him with someone who was pro-Russian. That obviously failed, and quite dramatically so. Then, of course, subsequent to that, the Ukrainians launched a counteroffensive in the Kharkiv province area, took back the bulk of that last fall, and also very skillfully uh, essentially isolated the Russian forces that were west of the Dnipro in Kharkiv uh, and forced the Russians to withdraw from th- that particular pocket, the only presence the Russians had uh, west of the Dnipro River down in the south. Uh, you had the winter offensive by the Russians, as I described, the very costly uh, seizure by the Russians finally of a city they essentially destroyed while taking it. And now they've lost much of the flanks of that city, of course, both to the north and the south of Bakhmut. And Bakhmut itself, I think, probably looks a bit perilous from a Russian perspective. And the Ukrainians have gradually been clawing back territory elsewhere in the southeast and the south in particular. But clearly, 
very, very hard, very costly. Uh, the one tactical initiative the Russians have actually demonstrated excellence in is defense in the South. They have a very extensive defense in depth with miles deep anti-tank and anti-personnel mines, with tank ditches, with dragon's teeth, with troops in trenches, again, multiple layers of these, and all of that with artillery nearby that can be called on either through forward observers using drones or human forward observers and trench lines so that whenever the Ukrainians are picking their way through these minefields, they can bring their very considerable artillery to bear on them. The Ukrainians sought to use their new combined arms capabilities with Western tanks and infantry fighting vehicles and so forth, which should have come much sooner, I might add. I think decisions on the M1 tank and the Leopard should have been taken last year rather than uh, earlier this year. Um, we delayed the decision on the dual purpose improved conventional munition, the so-called cluster munition with artillery. We still haven't provided them the rocket version of that. We have, to be sure now, let's recognize the Americans alone have provided more than $44 billion worth of arms, ammunition, and assistance. It's a staggering quantity, and I'd argue that the U.S., together with the U.K. and some other key countries, have guided the alliance very skillfully in a, in a comprehensive approach to this. So we shouldn't forget the financial, economic, and personal sanctions and export controls levied on Russia as well. But the bottom line is that the counteroffensive is very difficult, it's grinding, it's costly, but the Ukrainians have made modest gains. And I think there is the possibility that they can make further, more significant gains, frankly. I think it's much premature to declare, as some have, that the counteroffensive has failed already. It's only into its 10th week or so, or that it won't work this summer. I think that's also premature. I think war is uncertain. No plan survives contact with the enemy. We've seen that. And what's happened is the Ukrainians have adapted very impressively. What they've done is they have assessed that they're not going to be able to just bull their way through this. We didn't provide them enough mounted breaching capabilities. As Dom knows, you need these enormous armored bulldozers. You need air cover for it. We haven't yet provided the Western aircraft. They won't probably be in the inventory in the skies until uh, early next year. So just not possible for them to go through these minefields the way we would have, given all the assets that we have and the way we've done it a couple of times to varying degrees, although not facing anything quite as formidable as, the, as this, but certainly in the Gulf War and then the, uh, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, there were moments where we called on these kinds of capabilities, but we had total air supremacy not just air superiority. And the Ukrainians obviously don't have that at all. But again, I think premature to judge this particular offensive. I was there in early June, shortly before they launched it. I'll be back there in a, in a couple of weeks uh, and discuss this with their military leaders and political leaders and so forth. I think there are opportunities for them. I think that they can, uh, in the South in particular, start to crack the defenses. If you can get through the first belt, and then you see what's in the second belt. It does not appear to be quite as formidable uh, as that very substantial first belt has been, but it has been very, very difficult. So 
I believe it's still possible for the Ukrainians in there. This is not just a summer offensive for them. I think this is going to be a fall offensive and as long into the winter until the winter rains and perhaps snow just bring them to a halt. They're going to keep at this until they cut that ground line of communication from Russia that connects uh, into southeastern Ukraine and then down into Crimea. Try to cut that, try to isolate the forces that are west of that. Uh, and then, frankly, try to do more damage to the lines of communication, the air bases, the headquarters, the maritime bases, all the rest of that, so that you isolate Crimea more and can perhaps change the dynamics uh, of this particular war. So that's how I see it. I would add as well, again, that I hope that there will be additional decisions that the U.S. will provide the Army tactical missile system, which would double the range of what we have provided uh, so far that's shot from the multiple launch rocket system, the UK having provided Storm Shadow, which has been put to very good use. Um, And I hope that the aircraft can get into the arsenal sooner than is currently projected as well. Everything we have seen with the Ukrainians when it comes to training goes faster than we ever envisioned. They are very, very determined to get what they need and get back in the fight and help their fellow Ukrainians. Finally, let me just note I think your UK chief of defense staff has captured best of all how the Ukrainians are now going about this, because I think that listeners need to understand how the Ukrainians have adapted, and I think they have done so very impressively. They're now engaged in what is described as stretch, starve, and strike. So stretch, you keep them engaged, the Russians engaged throughout the 600-mile-long front lines. This is a very considerable distance. This is 150 miles farther than the fight to Baghdad, which I thought was a pretty considerable distance, despite having 254 helicopters as a commander of the great 101st Airborne Division in that particular effort. So they're keeping them engaged. They don't let the Russians really mass at any given point. Uh, They want to keep them. They want to try to force all of their reserves to be committed. The Russians don't have large reserves. And their forces, by the way, have been in these trenches for many, many months, some even longer than that. There's no rotational uh, plan for the Russians, unlike what we would have done, or certainly even what the Ukrainians have been trying to do. Second, you starve. So what they're doing is they are they're attriting, uh, using their long-range fires, using their precision munitions, using drones, both for strike and for forward observation, They're going after the Russian fuel depots, the ammo supply points, the headquarters, the lines of communication themselves, the bridges. There's only a few bridges that connect Crimea Peninsula with the mainland of southern Ukraine. The bridge, of course, that goes from Russia to Crimea, they've hit several times. They're going after those air bases and maritime bases in Crimea to the extent that they can. They're taking the fight to the Russians as well in uh, Russia proper. Uh, including Moscow, of course, having shut down the major airports there several times in recent days because of their activity. So all of this is going on. And then more tactically, they're going after the artillery units of the Russians, making very good use of these cluster munitions that we rightly provided uh, to them uh, and making use of other assets that they have. So ultimately, of course, the troops that are actually in the front lines of the Russian uh, defenses. So that's the starve part, the attrit part to try to undermine the Russian ability to continue to fuel, feed, rearm, and take care of their own forces' logistical needs. And then finally, they're going to strike. And when they have opportunities, they will use, they still have reserve elements. 
that we have not yet seen committed. They have committed some of the Western forces, Western provided vehicles that, that are the core of some of the new brigades that they formed. But there are still elements that we know have not been committed. And watching for this, I think, is going to be key because when they do, when they are able to crack the Russians, then I think they might be able to use the combined arms capabilities that they didn't have before and to use the reserve forces so that when the frontline attack culminates, as it inevitably does, inevitably, if nothing else, after 72 hours, the troops just can't go much farther physically, then you have follow-on forces that can exploit what they have achieved and continue the attack and then perhaps get the Russians moving. Then once they're out of trenches, once they're having to move, you can engage them uh, more effectively as well. So that's how I see this. I think clearly the, the Ukrainians are making progress. It has been very hard during the first 10 weeks of this counteroffensive. I remember during the early months in Iraq, I told Congress, this is going to get much harder before it gets easier. It did. And then there was a moment four or five months into it where all of a sudden you started to make progress and you started to see the momentum shift. And I hope that's what we will see this summer. At the very least, it's premature to make any kind of declaration about the offensive that's been going on, again, just for two and a half months so far. Thank you very much for your answer there. Through your analysis, you mentioned the Western guidance and assistance and aid to Ukraine. Can we talk a bit about your own experience doing that? In July 2022, you joined other military retired military generals to form the Strategic Advisory Council for the Defense of Ukraine. What was your uh, experience of that? What was it like? What is it like working with the Ukrainians? What can you tell us about that? Well, what we were really trying to do, we're not working per se with the Ukrainians, say on the battlefield or something like this, or doing what rightly our country's security assistance elements are doing. And there's quite an elaborate structure of that. What we were trying to do really more was to help our governments understand what the critical needs were, because we do have some experience in, in, in combat, each of us. And this is an initiative launched by the chief of defense, former chief of defense staff of Canada, with whom I served in, in uh, Bosnia and elsewhere, and then Afghanistan, where the Canadians were so superb. And so what we're trying to do is to identify what's needed and then help our own governments essentially get to yes on some of these issues. Again, as I mentioned, the U.S. in particular, but also the U.K., Germany and several other countries have done extraordinary work in this regard. I mean, think about $44 billion just from the U.S. alone. That's more, I think, than the annual defense budgets of all but three NATO countries, I think. Again, we could research that perhaps, but certainly Germany, UK, and France, I believe. That is a staggering quantity. Notwithstanding, there have been decisions that have, in our view, taken longer than they should have, in particular, the decision to provide the M1 tanks, which then unlocked the decision by the Germans to provide the Leopards. In fact, not only just their own Leopards, but those that other countries had in their arsenal but couldn't release to Ukraine even though they wanted to because of the end user limitations imposed by all countries when they sell their arms and ammunition to, to, to other countries. So certainly the, the decision for MLRS probably took longer than it should have. There's been a number of these along the way. And the Ukrainians, uh, you know, they'll ask for something, they're told no, then they ask again, they're told maybe, and then finally, well, why don't we get to that? I can understand in early months in particular, there were concerns about 
this being perhaps overly provocative or escalatory or something like that. I think we have, and I understand, I've sat around the Situation Room table in the West Wing of the White House, and it's a much more sobering sense than when you're essentially sitting in the Situation Room of CNN or the Telegraph. It, I think, though, we need to get past that and we need to accelerate the decisions on some additional critical elements such as cluster munitions for the rockets, not just the artillery, such as the Army tactical missile system to double the range that we uh, would enable for the U.S. multiple launch rocket system. Again, Storm Shadow having taken it a bit further than right now, this would take it even farther. More advanced drones, additional air defense and munitions and, and so forth, all of these. And then the acceleration of the F-16 program, and perhaps even let's see the Gripen enter the, the fray, Many people think that it actually might be more suited to the rugged kinds of airfields and so forth that Ukraine has. The problem is it's just not the ubiquitous airframe that the F-16 is uh, and therefore is much more easy to provide from NATO countries that are willing to do this and then upgrade to the F-35 or something like that. So again, tremendous effort, really extraordinary. I don't think that I I certainly don't think that Vladimir Putin assessed that the U.S. and the West would respond as firmly and as substantially as has been the case. And you have the other elements of this as well, the diplomatic component, you have the economic, financial, uh, and other sanctions and export control component. And you're seeing the ruble at basically the lowest. It was below one cent the other day. It rebounded a little bit when they jacked up interest rates. But the Russian economy is feeling this, even if those perhaps right in Moscow are somewhat insulated because, of course, Putin is recruiting not from the elite in Moscow, but from those who are good distances from the capital. General, if we could stick with the battlefield just for a moment, please, before broadening it out. You've described there the, the stretch staff strike model. If we could add on top of that geographic model, a kind of environmental lens as well. And if you think about the time, the time now till the muddy season comes, the respititsa and the winter beyond that. Do you think that the the geography and the geometry of the war still favours Ukraine and will get better as winter hits those troops in the in the trenches? Or will it favour the defender because the, the, the mud is going to be it's going to make movement so much harder, and then the winter with all the all the privations that entails for both sides. But I just wonder how you could how you see the geometry of the war now with a layer of time and the environment on top of it. If you could talk us through your thoughts there, please. Sure. Well, look, you spent more than two decades in in uniform as well, and I think you appreciate, as I do, that the only answer to a question like that can be it depends, and it depends on a number of different factors. Most significantly is whether or not. Russian forces at some point crack and perhaps even crumble or even collapse. Again, that's not the base case necessarily, but it is not a case that I would rule out. Uh, And that's certainly what those of us who are following this very, very closely uh, are looking for. So that's, I think, the key. The Ukrainians know that. The Ukrainians are fighting for their very survival. For This is their war of independence. Uh, Russian soldiers are not all that happy to be there in many cases. Uh, they're not taken very good care of. They certainly can't look over their shoulder and see who they're fighting for uh, and all the rest of this. So I think this is where that the moral is to the physical is three is to one might come into play. And that's, I think, what we should 
should look for. There are little tiny signs of this. Every now and then you see Russian elements that might surrender rather than they, the Russian POWs don't want to be sent home. For example, there are slight cracks, but nothing like a real crumbling, much less a collapse. But that's, I think, what we need to watch for. That's what I'm sure the Ukrainians are trying to figure out how to precipitate and why they're, they haven't ruled out options all along that front line in various ways to enable them to get to that overall objective that we described earlier. That said, again, I think you, you at most this fighting season, hopefully cut off that ground line of communication, isolate Crimea, and at some point demonstrate to Russia that this is not winnable and that it's not actually survivable. Again, Russia ultimately concluded after nearly 10 years and far, far fewer losses than Ukraine, than Ukraine has already inflicted on Russia that Afghanistan was not sustainable. And that's what needs to be conveyed here. By the way, we need to play our part in this as well, because Vladimir Putin doesn't yet look in the mirror and see somebody who's made a catastrophically horrific decision for his country. He sees a leader of a proud people who outsuffered Napoleon's army and outsuffered the Nazis and still thinks he can outsuffer the Ukrainians, the Europeans, and the Americans. And the sooner we convince him that that is not going to be the case with a comprehensive approach. What we provide to Ukraine, what we do to the Russian economy, export controls diplomatically and so forth, that's then and only then do I think you have an opportunity where you might have some kind of resolution of this war and avoid a new frozen conflict, let's say, with new front lines. I went down to the Donbass back in 2019 by the way, that's when I also saw how far the Ukrainian forces had come over the years since 2014 in the occupation of Crimea and the Donbass. And that's where I started to sense that, you know what, I'm not, I don't think these Russians are going to take the capital in three days and go home to a victory parade, as many were saying at that time, including uh, the intelligence analyses, reportedly. But again, they've got to change the dynamic. That's got to be the objective. The Ukrainians are keenly aware of this. Their ingenuity is coming to the fore, the creativity, the innovativeness, you know, the development of maritime drones, the development use, further use of air drones and so forth. You're seeing real glimpses of the future of warfare, but not by no means this is not the future of warfare. It's almost a, a hybrid of sort of World War One, World War Two. Again, some indications of what the future of war might be like. And of course, in a context that for the first time has smartphones in the hand of just about everybody on that battlefield, has internet access still, and has social media under which they can upload videos, photos, comments, etc. So it's, it's, it, it, this is a very, very different battlefield in certain respects, but very similar uh, in others to, again, the trenches of World War I, the extensive defenses, mines, wire, tank ditches, dragon's teeth, and all the rest of that that we've seen also in World War II in various of the campaigns there as well. Thank you. You mentioned there the Soviet experience in Afghanistan, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on whether what happened to the Soviet Union, i.e. the collapse you could draw a direct line between Soviet forces coming out of Afghanistan and the collapse of the system. I wonder how much that is still playing on the minds of, well, Putin and, and anyone else who wields any power in the Kremlin. I'm sure it plays very heavily. He's keenly aware that if you lose a war in Russia, Russo-Japanese War, World War One, 
Afghanistan, your longevity is somewhat in jeopardy. And that, and that is a problem. So, so he's in it to the death. You know, I don't know about the death. I think somebody always has something left to lose. I think I, I don't think, for example, that we'll see nuclear weapons employed in Ukraine unless there's some kind of very elaborate false flag attack where, you know, supposedly Ukraine has done something to Russia on Russian soil and Russia has to respond. Uh, and there have been, you know, allegations that, that this there's planning for this kind of activity or at the Zaporizhia nuclear power station or something. But I generally think, again, that there has to be a moment where he does conclude, I got to get out of this because the price of this is just getting too high. He's never declared total mobilization. He doesn't want to. Uh, he's facing a reelection. The outcome is not in doubt at all. But, you know, the, the percentages can be and the discontent could be. And he, we've already seen one individual in a moment of madness, frankly, Prigozhin, who actually launched a coup attempt, essentially, or at least an attempt to supposedly kidnap the Minister of Defense and Chief of the General Staff and hold them until they reversed these decisions that threatened his contracts and his soldiers' allegiance. So there's undoubtedly dynamics underneath the surface that we can't see. That's always the most challenging aspect of this kind of situation. That it's inconceivable that the authoritarian leader could be toppled until you know you look back and say, well, that was inevitable. But those dynamics are very interesting as well. Thank you. Just broadening it out slightly, I'm just conscious of the time. Just sticking with Afghanistan, if we may, after the Doha agreement and the and our failure to to develop political structures through the decades that we were there, do you think that the there was any other way for us to have withdrawn two years ago this week, actually, other than the chaos that we saw? And uh, you know, do, do you think we ever really understood the tribal structures, the human terrain, and the environment we were operating in? I think we actually did develop a reasonable understanding of that. Certainly never perfect, always a bit of opacity in that. But, you know, the tragedy of Afghanistan is that we didn't get the inputs right for the first time until about nine years into the war, because, of course, we toppled the Taliban, took out the Al-Qaeda sanctuary in eastern Afghanistan, sadly didn't get uh, Osama bin Laden until a decade later. Happily, I was still, I was the commander at that moment. But we then immediately shifted focus to Iraq and didn't return to that really substantially until very late 2008, early 2009, after the success of the surge in Iraq enabled us to actually start to contemplate giving resources to a war that was going very, very poorly. And then it took us a year and a half or so to get you know, we didn't even have the right big ideas, much less the organizational architecture needed, much less the resources. We'd had some terrific commanders, David Richards, uh, General Sir David Richards, now actually Lord Richards was one of them, but we never resourced them properly. And so there were this, we were always fighting behind, always shooting behind the target when it came to Afghanistan. I, I should just note that I had to do an assessment there for Secretary Rumsfeld on the way home from my three-star tour in Iraq, the second tour in Iraq. And I came back to the Pentagon and I laid out to him and I said, I realize that the level of violence in Afghanistan is vastly less. This is 2005 fall than it is in Iraq. Seems like it's going reasonably well. I have to tell you, I think that's going to be the longest of the long wars. And it, that proved to be accurate, sadly. And it was because of the context there, which is so, so challenging. Yeah, I mean, we, the tribal issues and the politics and all the rest of that, but let's not forget the sanctuaries that the Taliban 
and to a considerable degree, the Haqqani network or Haqqani Taliban, because they were in league together, uh, enjoyed in Baluchistan to the south of Afghanistan and in North Waziristan to the east of Afghanistan. Uh, the fact that there is really no real revenue to speak of compared to the 100 billion in Iraq if the oil was actually flowing. Very, very low literacy rate, limited infrastructure. You know all of this from your own time in, in Helmand province, of course, uh, and the host of other challenges. The tragedy is that I think there was a sustainable way forward when that tragic agreement was struck in Doha and that we did not take that. And then, frankly, the subsequent president who reversed lots of his predecessors, other international decisions, whether it was the Paris Climate Accord, World Health Organization membership and a host of others, did continue with this one. There were some things we could have done, I think, to have improved the chances of that withdrawal. But at the end of the day, once we withdrew our forces and the 17,000 Western contractors who maintained the linchpin of the entire defensive scheme, which was the U.S. provided helicopters that were overly sophisticated. I'd, I'd fought against doing that when I, we were still buying old refurbished Russian ones, which the Afghans could actually repair. Once we withdrew those and then the fixed wing troop transport and uh, attack aircraft, uh, the Afghans knew nobody was coming to the rescue. And actually, I think it was weeks prior to that on Fox News or one of the news channels, I said, I fear a psychological collapse of the Afghan forces when they realize that no one's coming to the rescue with reinforcements, emergency resupply, emergency medevac, and close air support, all of which we would have guaranteed in the past had it not been forthcoming from the Afghans. And they had a considerable capacity as long as we help them maintain it. And I think we just completely lack the appreciation of that. And then, of course, their own leadership uh, proved to be anything but what President Zelensky has been, which is positively Churchillian. Uh, so, again, lots and lots of issues there. I felt that there was an alternative to that agreement, which I think was among the worst diplomatic agreements in our history. You know, we essentially gave the enemy what he wanted and forced our partner, the elected partner in Kabul, to release 5,000 Taliban detainees to, to get them to agree to allow us to go home. Again, this was, this was really, a, really a shameful episode, I think. And we had a sustainable alternative, which was keep 3,000, 3,500 US troops. All the other coalition members wanted to stay, uh, as you know, and you just keep supporting the Afghans, but you are advising, assisting, and enabling, not fighting. And we hadn't had a casualty or had a loss in 18 months, I think. So if you measure the cost in terms of blood and treasure, the two metrics that matter determining whether something is sustainable, that was easily sustainable. And clearly, I think, however frustrating it was, however difficult it was, disappointing, what have you, that surely was better than what we see on the ground in Afghanistan now, which is absolutely tragic and terrible, with half the population basically consigned to being able not to participate in the economy, to go out of their homes, to go to high school, much less college, et cetera, et cetera. And not the same that we were fighting to enable women to go to school, but all the other aspects here as well, including the fact that the Al-Qaeda leader ended up in Kabul shortly after it was toppled in a house controlled by the Taliban within walking distance of the, the former White House there, uh, if you will. General, thank you very much for your time. 
from your military career and time as director of the CIA, what is your assessment of Vladimir Putin as a man? And what could, in the end, stop him, do you think? And just as a corollary to that, would you rather see him removed from power or remain in the Kremlin but weakened? Well, again, that depends as well, of course. The, in the big question that I, you can be sure that our intelligence agencies, both of them and those of our allies, are all trying to divine what might happen. Who could take Putin down? Who, who would replace him? Would the Russian Federation collapse? Is that desirable or is that to be concerned about? You know, you have all of these issues, but clearly Putin is this grievance-filled, revanchist, revisionist historian who has constructed this worldview that allows him to decide that he should invade a neighbor without provocation, do so in a very brutal manner. By the way, with troops who almost seem to have a culture of war crimes rather than opposing them, and he's all just fine with all of this. Now, again, that worldview is what's very, very troubling, and how you get through to that is very, very difficult. Again, I I think this is a very, very tough question. I know it's one that, again, my old comrades are wrestling with mightily, but it depends on the assumptions you make about who might follow him. By the way, one of the general senses is that the person who follows him could be worse, that it would be a hardliner, an even more hardliner who might take over, and that that's the kind of person that comes to the fore in a situation like this. And then again, what does happen to this vast country, which has the largest nuclear arsenal in the world, uh, and all the rest? So these are very, very tough, tough issues to analyze. And, and I'm sure that what analysis is being provided has all kinds of cautions and qualifications and various branches and sequels, because again, so difficult to make conclusive decisions on this kind of issue. Of course, one can imagine a scenario where a hardliner were to take over and oust Putin, but then because he needs to solidify his support at home, then he then doesn't have the resources sure. to, to then be able to engage in imperialist ventures and also subversive measures against yep. the West. Um, sure. And just staying on yep. that subject. Yeah, no, I, it, sorry, go I on. I think that's actually quite an important observation that someone else might actually be able to extricate Russia from a war because that someone else didn't start it, doesn't own it, uh, and can objectively say to the population, this is not sustainable. And if we want to get back to having our economy uh, being linked with that of our European neighbors, uh, who used to be the biggest customers and providers, if we want investors to come back on and on, as you know, because the damage that's being done is not felt immediately. It'll take time. You know, the major oil producers will no longer help Russia drill in the permafrost and the really difficult extraction. That means Russia's not going to be able to sustain the crude oil production that's the mainstay, by the way, of its uh, overseas earnings. You've already seen the Europeans quite successfully cut off the Natural gas from Russia, sure, there are other customers for some of that, but all of that comes at a discount. And meanwhile, again, over 1,200 American and Western firms have either left Russia completely or drawn down. There's been a brain drain and there's been a flight 
as well of those that are of military draft age that just don't want to serve. So there's a lot of dynamics here that are very difficult for Russia. The problem is that Putin is by no means yet convinced of that really important observation I made earlier that he may not be able to outsuffer the Ukrainians, the Europeans, and the Americans. And that's what we've tried, got to try to convince him is the case. You've already given some historical parallels with the war in Ukraine and the past. You're obviously a historian yourself, and I know you're an expert on the American Civil War, for instance. What other historical parallels come to mind to you when you think of strategy in relation to this war? Well, you know, um, your great historian, biographer Andrew Roberts, Baron Roberts of Belgravia now, and I just finished a book titled Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. And we see Ukraine again as sort of a bridge between past and future. It has some elements of the future of warfare, but not, not nearly as much as they will be. Nowhere near the ranges, nowhere near the ability to see, the nowhere near the the exquisite capabilities that are being developed for all kinds of unmanned systems, not just in the air and on the sea, but subsea, outer space, on the ground, and even in cyberspace, if you will, many of which will not be remotely piloted, but will be driven by algorithms where the human in the loop is the person that actually developed the conditions and the algorithm that must be met by the machine before it can take whatever kinetic or non-kinetic action. And I know this is a little bit scary, but this is where we are headed. To give you an idea, I think, of the future of warfare and then bring it back to Ukraine, there was an adage during the Cold War uh, that, that you'll probably remember Donald, that said, if it can be seen, it can be hit. If it can be hit, it can be killed. The truth is we never operationalized that. We never realized that. It was sort of much more aspirational. We couldn't see that well beyond the front lines. We didn't have, certainly didn't have drones, low earth orbit satellites, all the, the intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance assets we have today. Even if we could, we couldn't engage that accurately, especially if something was on the move. That took years later. Um, and then, therefore, we couldn't kill all of it. In a future conflict between, say, peer competitors of the Western nations, you can see everything. You can hit everything, and some of it with hypersonics that maneuver before they impact, uh, and therefore you can kill everything. And so this is why we're going to have to transition from this world in which we have small numbers of incredibly capable, exquisite platforms, heavily manned, to a vastly greater number of unmanned systems. Again, not just in the air, but on the surface of the sea, subsurface, ground space, and cyberspace. And again, many of those not just remotely piloted, but algorithmically driven. That's where the future is headed. You see glimpses of this in Ukraine. You know, they've released the video of their maritime drones as it strikes one of the Russian Black Sea Fleet ships. They're experimenting with ground uh, systems. They have developed very sophisticated, relatively speaking at least, uh, again, unmanned aerial vehicles that are, of course, going deep into Russian airspace and territory, but it's not the future. And though the context has changed dramatically because of, as I mentioned, the the advent of ubiquitous smartphones, internet access, and social media, which, which creates this incredible amount of open source intelligence, as it's termed, much of which is aggregated now by aggregators or websites like works.com that tracks all of the Russian and Ukrainian validated 
systems, kills, and so on. It's not yet, though, the future. And, of course, there's throwbacks to the past. Uh, I remember going to the Donbass, as I said, several years ago. And what I this is, again, just like World War I, except that it did have drones, it had optics, uh, and it had computers in the command posts. They've come a long way since then, but there's still trenches. Uh, there's still tank ditches. There's still these relics, if, if, if you will, that are still very, very effective, not to mention miles deep anti-tank and anti-personnel minefields, in some cases, stacking mines on top of one another. So that if the first one doesn't blow off the, the particular tank plow or whatever it is, the next one will, and you'll have a mobility kill, if not a, 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 a catastrophic kill. So again, this is a bit of a hybrid war, not in the way that Gerasimov used to talk about it. And by the way, you know, how about that? That's not so uh, impressive at this point in time, but it's a mix of some of the future, some of the past, and then some of what has just been the present in terms of just more advanced systems, such as the Javelin anti-tank guided missile that is a fire and forget, which we didn't have back in NATO days, and it can be a top attack as well. And in some cases has seemed to make the defense more more powerful right now. But as you well know, that's a, a pendulum that goes back and forth. And we've seen that. And, you know, we've declared the end of tanks in the past and until we needed them. So you see all of this on this battlefield, and it's got extraordinary lessons, I think, uh, for the future. It has glimpses of the future, but it's not the future of war. It's a mix of past, present, and future. Can I ask, one of the sort of defining features of the Cold War was the often sort of unseen battle between the intelligence services, often hidden from sight from the public. What's your assessment of the current state of play between the Russian intelligence services and their adversaries in the West and in Ukraine? And, and you mentioned social media quite a few times in your answers. How does that play into all of this? Well, let me start with the latter piece of that question. Uh, again, the ubiquitous nature of social media and open source intelligence, if you will, because again, there's everything can be mined, can be scraped, can be harvested uh, if it's online. And again, there are companies that do nothing but aggregate. We subscribe to a couple of these. Uh, there are websites that are nonprofits that provide unbelievable, uh, very granular information on, again, Russian armored system losses. And it's all validated and verified before it goes up there. So all of this together, if you can use all of it together uh, and then integrate it with, of course, traditional classified intelligence from sources and methods, technical means and so on, you've got a richness of intelligence that is really quite extraordinary. But at the end of the day, you still have the challenge, which has always been there and always will be, of how do you get inside the head of Vladimir Putin? You know, you can see his forces, you can see what they're doing. You can see them preparing for uh, an invasion. But at the end of the day, how do you get inside the mind of the individual who's going to say go or don't go? How do you divine how he is seeing this? You know, again, there are ways sources are hugely important uh, in various uh, aspects. And of course, it's still the coin of the realm for the uh, organizations like the great one I was privileged to lead and the one we partnered with there in, in the UK in particular. But what you see also is just this advent of big data, big data, big data, and whether it is 
the accumulation of just endless hours of full motion video, again, mining, uh, open source uh, information and so forth. The challenge is how do you integrate all that? How do you bring it together? And then how do you, in some cases, pull needles out of haystacks or make assessments based on all of this? But clearly the context uh, has changed very dramatically. And then you have the challenges just to traditional tradecraft in worlds of surveillance states and in worlds where there are cameras everywhere and, and all the rest of this and, and so forth. And where devices you carry, you forget, actually show where you are, such as remember the athletic bands that some of our special operators were using in Syria. And it turned out that people were able to pinpoint where the bases were. Again, there are tremendous challenges when it comes to tradecraft. You just don't do it the way that you used to do because everything is connected. Everything is surveilled. Uh, Everything captures data. And again, whether it's fingerprints or iris scans or facial recognition, you name it, the environment is much, much more challenging. But that war goes on. Uh, and clearly, it's it's in the shadows. The Russians really never stopped their activities uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union. They just renamed and continued on. Russia has been rediscovered, certainly very substantially in recent years by the world's intelligence services after, of course, a shift of focus first to the Islamist extremist challenges, then a shift now to the Far East. But it's all still ongoing. Uh, there are still incredibly great um, Americans and Brits and other counterparts around the world that are engaged in this quietly uh, behind the scenes and with tremendous skill, determination, resources and capabilities. General, you say there how hard it is to get into the mind of uh, an adversary. I would, I would agree with that and, and suggest it's just as hard, if not harder, to get out of the heart and the soul of the global population once you're in there. And with that in mind, I'd like to ask, how long do you think the shadow is of the Iraq war and how much moral power does that still give the likes of Russia and China today as they court yep. international public opinion? Well, look, there's a number of issues that one can extract from that particular question. One would be, by the way, how much did the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan and the way it was conducted influence Putin that we wouldn't respond forcefully? How much the sort of tepid response to the 2014 occupation of Crimea and the Donbass, how much to the red line in Syria that wasn't a red line, the the alleged failure to respond appropriately in the South China, you name it. I think these issues all reverberate and all come together in the mind of someone like a Putin uh, when he's making uh, a decision. So I think that's uh, an important aspect of this. You then have the shadow of Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, we had the the Vietnam syndrome or whatever that came out of the, the ex- U.S. experience in that war that very much influenced senior military when it came to advice to the president on the use of force. Uh, I wrote my dissertation at Princeton on this, the American military and the lessons of Vietnam. And then there are other experiences that are, you know, these offer cautionary tales, but not just for us, but for others. And then they also offer some still others uh, justification. It it enables them to say, what about? Uh, And so the what about is, and that you hear from, in particular, you know, the very skillful Foreign Affairs Minister Lavrov of Russia uh, is, again, it provides some degree of 
ammunition to him in a way that, you know, arguably Afghanistan where was the source of the attack on the Twin Towers, I think, didn't have that same degree of, of controversy, if you will. Just one last question from me, if I may, General, and that is relating to China. Looking ahead, what do you think the threat is of China in the short and the long term? In the short term, we've, of course, have got Taiwan on the agenda. But in the long term, do you see it as an existential threat to the world order we inhabit today? Or do you think that, that some of those claims that have been made in as, a contra- as a result of the war in Ukraine are, are slightly overdone? Well, again, I hate to answer this again the same way as I did earlier. Part of this is that I taught economics in, in an earlier life and you know, realize that you always have to say it depends. And it does depend. It depends on a number of different factors. Uh, and I should just state up front that, look, no one more than somebody who had five combat commands would like to see the relationship between the West and China, the U.S. and China, be as mutually beneficial as is absolutely possible. But clearly, there are enormous areas of friction that go beyond competition. There are enormous concerns. Taiwan uh, is one of those issues. There are others. Um, and the stated goals of China uh, do seem to include um, making the world safe for their kind of uh, political uh, ideology and system, which therefore undermines, if you will, the so-called rules-based international order that our two countries and others went to great lengths to construct in the wake of a 50-year period that included two terrible world wars and then the Great Depression. Uh, and generally, generally has served the well, the world reasonably well since then. So this is a huge, huge issue. Of course, there's a massive effort ongoing on the one hand to shore up deterrence, deterrence being a product of a potential adversary's assessment of two factors, your capabilities on the one hand, we have to re- really transform our capabilities, especially in the Indo-Pacific, all of us, and then the assessment of our willingness to employ them, which is probably why President Biden several in several occasions has implied that we would come to the aid of Taiwan were it attacked, that kind of thing. After or before, of course, his national security advisor then comes out and says there's no change to our policy of strategic ambiguity and, and, and so forth. So my hope is that when you examine all the factors in here, there would be decisions in Beijing uh, that could then be reinforced by Washington that can get some guardrails on the, on the relationship, uh, establish a floor for it, establish communications, uh, not just between the, the senior leaders, but also bridge to bridge out in the South China Sea in places where things could go bump in the night. And over time, a recognition would emerge that perhaps it's better uh, if we all just get along uh, and prosper together than to try to achieve these very, very significant political goals that, again, Beijing has has often seemed to espouse. Again, that's a difficult issue. I think it's the most important issue in the world today. You know, we occasionally describe what the U.S. has to do in the lead, but with its allies and partners together, which is akin to keeping many, many plates spinning, you know, as the guy in the circus who gets a plate spinning, gets another, has them, and he keeps going back. And yes, we have allies and partners that we all work together to keep some of these spinning. The plate in that tent that matters more than all the others, and there are more plates right now, I think, and more challenging plates right now than at any time since the end of the Cold War, if not the end of World War II. 
but that china plate can't be allowed to wobble and we have to go to great lengths again to ensure that deterrence is working that there is certain de-risking of certain vulnerabilities that that all have recognized not just the us but the eu uk and others and that we nonetheless try to get the relationship back on a more even keel and convince all everyone involved that perhaps it's better again to have a mutually beneficial relationship more than than not that is probably a bit aspirational at at least uh, but i think that's certainly what all of our countries are trying to do while appropriately in certain cases again seeking to reduce vulnerabilities risks and avoid enabling uh, certain activities as well that might help a potential adversary. Well, thank you so much for your time and for answering all of our questions. We just have one more we ask all of our guests, which is essentially, is there anything that we haven't spoken about that you think is really important for our listeners to know and understand, or even something you want to re-emphasize? You know, what's, what are your final thoughts? Well, since the audience largely is going to be those in the UK, presumably, I know you have a wider reach than that, but I would offer there that having been one who has not just studied the special relationship, but experienced it, you know, commanding two different wars in a theater of combat and always having uh, Brits as my wingmen or partners or what have you, deputies constantly in this kind of thing and great British contingents that I hope that global Britain will continue to be operationalized and that the capabilities that undergird that or make it possible, whether it's in in uniform and the great diplomatic corps that the UK has, uh, DFID, I know now they're folded together and so forth, but all these different capabilities, uh, obviously intelligence, special operations, law enforcement as well, that all of these can continue to be resourced adequately and sufficiently uh, to enable that relationship to be as meaningful as it has been for probably over a century now, if not longer. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.